Welcome to the Leadership Now podcast with Dr. Aaron Rock. Aaron has served as a pastor, as a professor, and a chaplain, and he has a keen interest in helping other Christians to think Christianly about all of life. So on this show, we talk about the nuts and bolts of theology, church life, cultural issues, pastoral leadership, ethics, and other relevant matters that will help you to lead better now. I'm your host, Chris Eelman, and today we are going to talk about climate change. We know many people have been talking about climate change. It's in the news a lot. You maybe have heard things like climate agenda, and there's a lot of discussion and debate about this. And so we want to talk about this, obviously, as Christians and from a Christian worldview and perspective. And so, Aaron, to get us started today, uh, I know many people, many of us are suspicious of the climate change agenda because it's tied to several godless ideas. But, you know, that aside, since we're all going to heaven anyways, which is true, do we have a responsibility to preserve our physical environment? That's, I think, where we should start. Well, we're not dualists. We're not just spiritual beings. We are physical beings and we live in a physical world and God has given us a physical world and we're going to spend eternity on a physical world. We're not going to be plucking on the strings of harps on clouds in some... (laughs) spiritual world, we are incarnate beings. And while our bodies will die and there'll be a bodily resurrection, we need to understand we are physical beings and the physical environment that we're in matters. We do tend to live in areas where the climate is more hospitable to Mm -hmm. human habitation. If you go up into the Arctic, you're going to find far fewer people. God bless them, but you're going to find far fewer people. So we we do pay attention to the environment around us. We turn on the air conditioning if it's too hot. We turn up the heat if it's too cold. We wear coats if it's too cold. We put on rain gear for being you know in a torrential downpour. And that's because we're physical beings. So we do care about our physical environment. Just from a very practical perspective, we do. But there's also a theological dimension to this. There's a dominion mandate that were given in the opening chapters of Genesis. In Genesis chapter two, it tells us that God took the man and he put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to take care of it. Not to destroy it, but to take care of it. And yet in Genesis 1, 28, the chapter earlier, we're reminded that we have dominion over the fish and the birds and the animals and the heavens. So we have a position within the created order to represent God and to have dominion, to have stewardship, to rule the world under the ultimate authority of the benevolent king, but to rule the world on God's behalf. And part of dominionship is reflected. If someone were to ask, what is dominionship? What does it mean to properly rule? Well, we have the ruler God as our ultimate example. We must rule benevolently as he does. We want to take care of the possessions he's entrusted to us and stewarded to us. You don't take your paycheck and go throw it in the fireplace. You don't take your food and just throw it out to the trash. You, you know, you save, you conserve, you, you obviously want to steward and take care of your uh, possessions. We understand that everything that we have is from the Lord. So uh, we notice this, Chris, even with little children where, One of the, uh, I guess we could call this a pro-parenting tip. When we're educating our children in mathematics and in language and in spiritual matters, we're also educating them in terms of what it means to be human and how to interact with the environment around them and how to dress properly and how to interact with, you know, their physical environment, look both ways before you cross the road, uh, don't wander off into the forest at night. We teach children how to take care of animals. And you'll you'll often watch little children with animals, and there's just something built into them where they, they want to care for, they want to nurture, they want to hold. You know, a lot of little kids, I want a goldfish, I want a hamster, I want a cat, I want a dog. And a, a pro-parenting tip is it's actually a good idea to give your children pets because it teaches them a certain rudimentary aspect of dominionship to have to go feed your goldfish or it will die to have to feed your hamster and clean its cage or change the cat litter, make sure your cat has water. These are all things that can kind of get in the way as, you know, as parents, we're often busy. We're like, you know, that's, it's just an, it's just another thing to take care of. And I know it's going to be my responsibility. I, I understand that, but there's something 
there's something blessed in teaching children uh, in a very physical, kinesthetic way how to care for their physical environment, including the animals within it. So I'm 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 always a big advocate. Obviously, people are busy and. Some people live in apartments and animals aren't allowed and whatnot. But if possible, I, I do think exposing children to caring for animals or watering plants and growing things. I remember in grade school, you know, we all got a one of those styrofoam cups and they threw a bit of topsoil in it and we stuck a bean in it. And then we all watch with bated breath for that bean plant to grow. There's There's something about helping children to see how we steward and care for the physical world that is is quite quite important. So yes, we should be responsible for the physical environment within which we live. We're responsible for our animals. In Proverbs 12:10 it says the righteous man cares for his animals. We don't speed up when we see an animal on the road and needlessly run it over. We don't go hunting and just blow animals away and leave them to die and waste. We don't starve our animals. We care for them. We understand they're a stewardship. God owns the cattle on a thousand hills. Ultimately, they're his. So to ruin them needlessly is to ruin God's God's possessions. But we're also permitted to harvest animal life, to harvest fruit, to harvest grain, to harvest vegetables for our own benefit. And while the world as a whole, even its even in its corrupted state, does have a certain rugged beauty to it, the psalmist tells us that the heavens declare the glory of God, our ultimate goal is not just to preserve it, but to also benefit from it. Mm-hmm. And so we have been given the green light by God to drink the water from the earth, to till the land, to grow food, to harvest meat, to pluck an apple from a tree in an orchard. That's okay. Mm-hmm. Not only is it okay, it's necessary and it's realistic. So what we're, what we're wanting people to understand, and this is, diff- this is a biblical model of stewardship, as opposed to a sort of a neo-pagan utopian model of stewardship. It doesn't belong to us. It belongs to God. That tells us that when we care for it, we care for it as stewards, not owners. Ownership Mm -hmm. is the enemy of stewardship. We care for it as stewards. We are allowed to use it. There's going to be wear and tear on the land at certain points in the season. When we cut down a forest, there's wear and tear on that land until the new forest grows up. When we harvest the crops and till up the ground, there's wear and tear on the ground. And and yet and yet we are we are given the green light, if you will, the mandate, the opportunity to enjoy the created order and to use it as God sees fit. So we're, we're stewards, we have dominion, we can harvest what we need. We can eat the plants and the meat of the land, and we can share it with others. And uh, there's an interesting passage in Leviticus just along those lines where it talks about when you harvest your fields, don't go right to the outer edges of your fence lines. Allow that crop, those seeds to remain so that sojourners and foragers can come and Mm -hmm. gain from it. So we're not just interested in maximizing our own profits and feeding our own faces and filling our own bellies. But part of our stewardship is to also make sure that we can provide for the less fortunate. So nobody wants to live in a smog, infested, dirty, rotten, garbage infested city. I remember back in 05 and 06, I've mentioned this before when I was in Beijing. Mm -hmm. And back then, this was before the advent of everyone being masked in a pandemic. I kind of wish I had a mask because the atmosphere was just thick mm-hmm. with smog from cars and from coal burning furnaces. And that makes sense, right? Cause if you're going to take the population of Canada, the equivalent population of the entire dominion of Canada and cram it into one city, yeah, you're going to have some issues. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. it might not be the greatest thing to pack everybody into a limited area, but um, yeah. So 
that's that's kind of how I would respond to that question. We want a robust biblical understanding of stewardship, but we're certainly not going to idolize the planet or bump ourselves off in order to um, you know make way for more more plant life or more animal life. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think that's really helpful that you just laid out. You know, general stewardship is a biblical theme. It's a it's biblical to take care of the earth. So obviously, there's going to be some things we need to do to take care of the earth. Um, so what would you say then are really the main issues with the climate agenda that we commonly hear? You know, we hear about it on the news. You might hear about it in documentaries. Kids are getting taught it in school. You're seeing it on National Geographic. Like, what are the what are the issues then? Well, the climate agenda tries to masquerade as a biblical agenda, not overtly, but to many Christians that aren't thinking carefully about what they're being told, what the climate change experts or the climate agenda experts say sounds a lot to them like biblical stewardship. Well, we're going to need to take care of the planet. We need to take care of the planet. But that's not, it's not really what we're being told in the climate agenda. So in the climate agenda, you're going to have aspects of truth and aspects of error. Mm-hmm. And the discerning Christian needs to weed through that. Pardon the pun. <laughs> yes. But we we do need to weed through that and sort through that. So there's several things about the climate agenda, and I'm going to speak in generalities, that are a concern. The first one that I, I want to talk about is science. Climate change is not... I want to emphasize this with great force. Climate change is not settled science. It's not settled science. And even if it was settled science, what we need to understand is that science changes. So whenever we hear the experts say, trust the science, science is the ultimate arbiter of truth. Yep. This is what the scientists say. We, we need to kind of step back and just take that with a grain of salt. So I want to I use an illustration of this that's very recent. Now, bear in mind that most modern secular scientists believe that the world is millions and millions and billions of years old. I don't, but they do. But whether you believe the world is six or 7,000 years old, or millions and billions of years old, we would all agree that if you cut a little wedge out of that timeline of 40 years, that that's a very, very small percentage, a very, very, it's a fraction of a percentage of the total time that a person believes the world has been in existence. So 40 years is nothing. And in 1978, which is approximately 40 years ago, I would have been uh, five years old. Mm -hmm. And when I was five years old, there were a lot of things that were taught from the time I was five, maybe into my young teen years. You know, there was acid rain. We were concerned about that. There's the depletion of the ozone layer. There was lots of concern about that. And younger people may not know this, but when I was a kid, the big fear was an ice age which is the exact opposite of what we're being told today. We're, we're, we're being told all the time we need to concern ourselves with global warming, global warming, the ice caps are melting, the, the sea levels are rising. We're all gonna, we're gonna flood out our coastal cities. We're, we're, you know, we're gonna plunge the world into destitution. And if you're not familiar with history, even 40 years ago, you might think, oh, well, that's what's happening. That's what the scientists are telling us. But there's an interesting clip from 40 years ago that I, I wanna play to my um, listeners. And it's being narrated by Leonard Nimoy. This is 1978. He he was the uh, actor that um, played the role of Spock on the old Star Trek show. But li- listen to what he says and listen carefully to his prediction. So keep in mind, he's he's an, probably a middle-aged adult at the time. So he would be the age of my, my parents roughly at the time. I'm the little boy in 1978. And he's predicting what will happen to the generation of his grandchildren, which would be my children. So that would be now. My my children are basically all adult, young adults now. And he's predicting that essentially in 2022, this period of time, this is what the world is going to be like. This is just 40 years ago. So let's let's roll that clip. What scientists are telling us now 
is that the threat of an ice age is not as remote as they once thought. During the lifetime of our grandchildren, Arctic cold and perpetual snow could turn most of the inhabitable portions of our planet into a polar desert. All right. So there you have it. During the lifetime of our grandchildren, folks, that's now. That's this generation. Arctic cold and perpetual snow could turn most of the inhabitable portions of our planet into a polar desert. We'll freeze to death. Now, if you want to take the time to Google that clip, it's on YouTube. Listen to it. I think it's about 20 minutes long. You can listen to it on 1.5 speed just to get through it quick. And it's the same rhetoric. They interview the experts from the University of Toronto, other experts. They take you into their labs. They show you the layers of ice. They talk about all the experiments they've done. And if you're a lay, lay scientist, just an average person, you're like, oh, okay, we're, we're going to be plunged into an ice age. And then they, f they amp up the fear mongering. They interview people that were caught in an ice storm in 1977, which by the way, I remember. Hmm. I remember in 1977, I would have been four years old. We had a massive, massive dump of snow across, I'm not sure how far it spread, but I know, I know it was in, in the area I was growing up in Southwestern Ontario and you opened the door and the, the snow was like a basically above the, the door, the door frame. My dad had to go out in the, the cold to shovel snow or get the car. I didn't think he was ever going to come back. Like I remember that. And if you're just looking at life in your little wedge of time mm -hmm. in the moment and over the course of two, three years, it's super dry. You might think the world's going to turn into a desert or it's super cold. We're going to die in a polar desert or, a, 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 you know, an Arctic, um, uh, that the whole world's going to turn, turn into like the Arctic or now the ice caps are melting. And so the scientists are looking at it and they're drawing their own conclusions. This is just a, a wedge of time in human history and science just changes. So what I, what I have been saying to people is if, if you, if you're the kind of person that just believes everything that science says, I just want to encourage you to do one thing, hop on Google and punch in the following words, superseded scientific theories. And a whole bunch of websites are going to come up, superseded scientific theories, and it's going to give you lists of theories in physics and the biological sciences and chemistry and astronomy and geology that have now been scientific theories that have been discarded and replaced with new theories. That's fine because what science is, is it's a process of human inquiry trying to understand the physical environment around them. What science isn't is the ultimate authority on how things mm -hmm. work or how things will be. Mm -hmm. Science has been wrong for the past 40 years or in a 40 year window, I should say science has proven itself to be wrong. The scientists of 1978 mm -hmm. don't agree with the sciences of the scientists of uh, 2022, but the Bible doesn't change. And the Bible says something about the state of the world from creation mm -hmm. until God decides to call it to an end. And here's what we know from the Bible. God will not destroy the world in an ice age. God will not destroy the world with rising ocean levels. In Genesis 8.22, it says, while the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. So we take confidence in that. And that passage has proven itself to be true. That statement from God has proven itself to be true for thousands and thousands and thousands of years. The scientists can't even get it right in 40 years. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So we're not going to die in a meteor strike, folks. And we're not going to die of rising ocean levels. And we're not going to freeze to death. When Christ returns, there'll still be people on the planet. And they won't be frozen solid. <laughs> yeah. We should make the caveat. Some might freeze, so please put your coat on, and <laughs> some might drown if you don't get away from the floods, sure, right? Sure. But, but uh, well, what's interesting in a, broke, a broken world, there's going to be perils. So the Bible talks of the, the, the times, the time moving toward the end of all things, where there'll be famines and wars and rumors of war. And there's been times in history where there's been more famines and more 
war and more godlessness as nation states have moved away from obedience to God's laws. And then the, the sort of the correctives have been made. And then it swings back again. So it's true that if we don't obey God's law, God's word, we don't set up our economies, our family structures, our political structures in, a, in accordance with the creator's word, will, ways, that there's going to be increased problems in the world and that will put people at peril. Mm -hmm. So if you decide to do something really stupid, like shut down all the butcher shops in the country, it's very difficult to get into to get animals into abattoirs these days because of uh, lockdowns, a result of lockdowns and so forth. We hear of food plants being burned or set on fire across the country. Um, we had a trucking problem when they were forbidding a lot of truckers, and they still are actually, from crossing the border to deliver produce. When uh, businesses were being opened and closed or unreasonable COVID tests were being foisted upon greenhouse employees. All of these things stalled and, and even closed down aspects of the economy for periods of time. So you're, you could... You could through political stupidity, bring about famines. You could, if you had no regard for the environment, potentially affect the atmosphere. Of course you could do that. Mm -hmm. But but the problem is actually sin mm -hmm. at its core. And the climate change experts certainly aren't calling people to repent or to follow God's pat patterns and principles for how we run economies or how we make decisions about our stewardship. Mm -hmm. They're not thinking about that. Uh, they're they're sort of setting themselves up as gods, as Nebuchadnezzar did, and declaring that they can fix this through human means. So yes, wars, famines are signs of a world that has abandoned God's laws. But if you really want to save the world and even improve the physical world, preach the full gospel, which isn't just about there's our escape pod to get off the planet, mm -hmm. but it also declares the absolute lordship of Christ over every sphere, over every aspect of the created order, which doesn't bring about heaven on earth by itself, but it certainly puts checks and balances in place to help people to steward their possessions, to manage their economy, to you know raise, um, work hard for a living to raise their own food, I was going to say, yep. and to, to and to provide for others. So there's a physical blessing that comes about as a result of, of, uh, of God's laws. And by the way, I'll just say this, even if, even if you, you know, you're a Christian, you're putting all as many of these principles into practice, and let's just say you were unencumbered, you were unhindered, and you're putting as many of the biblical practices into place as you possibly could. Again, this isn't heaven. Mm -hmm. There's going to be challenges there's, there's going to be difficulties along the way. Not everybody can be green. You know, every technology actually requires energy. There's always going to be garbage. We're always going to need landfill sites. There's always going to be droughts here and there. There's always going to be famines here and there. There's going to be pestilence here and there. That's part of living in a sin-sick world. Mm -hmm. It's true. Yeah. A couple of thoughts I had as you were just chatting there. One, when it comes to the it's not settled science, I think one of the things I'm seeing is this is, mirroring the predictions about the future mirror the same mistake science makes when it looks at the past. It just takes a snapshot of time and says, assuming these processes are consistent across all time, which is the big assumption, yeah. then that's where they get mil their millions of years from, right? They, they assume that everything decays at the exact same rate of decay, like not, not allowing for a global flood, et cetera. And so the same reason why we have evolutionary ideas about billions of years before they just apply the same logic going forward. And that's why they end up with these, they catastrophize or however you would say that they make false predictions about the future. Doomsday. Doomsday. It's, yeah, always, it's always doomsday stuff too. It's not like we're, we're, we're going to improve here. It's always doomsday predictions. Mm -hmm. It's fear because fear tends to motivate people to right. follow whatever agenda is out there. Mm -hmm. Fundamentally, when you listen carefully to the climate activists, you, what you're actually looking at are ideologies that are tied to what are what what have been come to uh, what have uh, come to be known as neo-pagan utopian philosophies or religious philosophies. So that the pagans of old 
lived in constant fear of their environment, mm -hmm. terrified that they were going to die in storms, terrified of the sea, terrified of crop shortages. And so they actually took their physical environment and strangely sacrificed it in order to try to fix that fear. Mm -hmm. So they would offer their children as sacrifices to their gods to protect life. They would bring their material possessions and burn it or destroy it in order to try to appease or appeal to the gods. And it was motivated by fear. It's not the same as the reverential awe that the Israelites offered when they offered burnt sacrifices to God of their possessions, understanding that God would provide. It wasn't, it was a, a fearful, rev, a reverential fear, but it wasn't a fear of the, the world around them. And it certainly wasn't an attempt to sort of manipulate the gods into, into providing and, and um, uh, extending their lives. But the, the pagans lived in constant fear of their environment. And in order to bring about a utopian world or a safer world, they would actually destroy the physical environment or destroy life or give themselves up in order to try to fix the problem or appease or appeal to the gods. And essentially, instead of prayerfully petitioning the true God of the harvest, the God of life and death for provision and trusting him and calling upon him as the Lord's prayer illustrates to provide us with our daily bread. They, they, they live their lives with, you know, all sorts of doomsday predictions and sort of this, this helplessness and this fear. And the, the modern man uh, is essentially, I think, committing a similar kind of mistake. There's there, they think they can fix the world by, reducing CO2. They think they can fix the world by building more greenhouses or reducing the population. We'll talk about that in a little bit. And they're, they're, bar they're essentially barking, barking up the wrong tree. Mm -hmm. Their, their worldview and their fearfulness is fundamentally driven by a Darwinian view of life. You know, Darwin was an interesting guy, thought about training for ministry, obviously went into the sciences uh, concocted the theory of macroevolution and redefined the Western world's notion of what a human being is, essentially declared that we are just biotic beings. Now, there's it's interesting in his works, he questions that, but his, his theory took hold and has been the dominant theory of human origins for close to 200 years, not quite, but close to 200 years, let's say 150 years now. And essentially at his core, at the core of it, his, his message is a hopeless message that we're just biological beings. We are a result of a series of random chances. We are not eternal in nature, although interestingly, Darwin was buried in a church. We're, but we're not eternal in nature. And if that's your worldview, Chris, I can understand how you would want to save the planet at all costs because this is all you have. This is your one kick at the can. This is your one stint here on planet Earth. And if you blow this one, this is it. Mm -hmm. So from that that fearful Darwinian godless, again, neo-pagan perspective, there's this, this insatiable thirst to bring about almost like heaven on earth through human efforts to, to redeem, to reform, mm -hmm. to recreate the world through human efforts. And this, this is why climate alarmism is so normal. It's not just a, a scientific discussion about rising sea levels or overpopulation or crop shortages. It's laced with fear and alarmism and exaggeration, much like we saw during the pandemic. There's a virus out there. It's a nasty virus. It killed some people. But the alarmism mm -hmm. and the the exaggeration and the fear mongering was sickening. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately, many Christians who aren't supposed to be living in fear of death were terrified of death. We've had people like absent from church for two and a half years who are just terrified of death. Yeah. So I want to play another clip from our 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 good friend Greta Thunberg, 
<laughs> not really, but she's uh, she's been on the news a lot over the last several years. And some of you remember her her famous speech where she rants and raves about mass extinction and and uh, imminent death. And just as I, as I play this, I just want want to use her as an illustration of the kind of fear, the kind of terror, and the kind of exaggeration that many climate change uh, activists tend to tend to demonstrate in their public discourse. This is all wrong. I shouldn't be up here. I should be back in school on the other side of the ocean. Yet you all come to us young people for hope. How dare you? You have stolen my dreams and my childhood with your empty words. And yet, I'm one of the lucky ones. People are suffering. People are dying. Entire ecosystems are collapsing. We are in the beginning of a mass extinction. And all you can talk about is money and fairy tales of eternal economic growth. How dare you? Well, she's certainly not going to win any awards for her acting abilities. But uh, it, the sad thing is, is while, while there's probably a little bit of showmanship there in her presentation, she actually believes this. 100%. She believes this. 100%. And the people that are cheering her on, some do, some don't. It's just they probably were clapping because the person next to them is clapping. It's, the, it's, the, you know, it's like I, I stand for the latest thing, right? It's like mm -hmm. that, that kind of an idea. It's just... It's it's common to to hitch your wagon to whatever horse happens to be running by in the moment. Right now, it's the climate change horse. But um, she represents the fear and the godlessness. So if if you and I as Christians were to identify that we had a problem with our livestock, we don't freak out. We don't lose our mind. We we believe that the world is going to endure until Christ returns recreates the world. We don't need to worry about such things. We deal with the issue. Mm -hmm. We don't live in fear. We certainly don't exaggerate. I mean, she talks about we're on the verge of mass extinction of what? Mm -hmm. What are you talking about? Mass extinction of what? Did you read that on the internet or did you actually see this? By the way, a lot of these young people, a lot of these woke activists have never set foot on a farm have never flown ar around the, the world and actually seen the vast swaths of unused land everywhere. The, all their information comes from the internet and it, it comes from the internet or it comes from their science teacher at school who's learned what they've learned from reading the internet. So it, it's sort of disconnected from reality. Again, it's like the pandemic everybody's dying. The hospitals are full. The, the corpses are being stacked up like cordwood. And then you drive by and it's not true. Or you visit the hospital and it's not true. Or you step outside and your neighbor's out there cutting the lawn and everybody's still alive for the most part, right? It's, it's this alarmism, which isn't connected to reality and physical observation. It's, it's made up mm -hmm. and it's, it's, it's like they're, they're pouring through, through the internet and social media, they're pouring fire on the flames. I used to have a subscription, by the way, to National Geographic, and I canceled it because I was just sick and tired of the evolution. Mm -hmm. But I did like their history hmm. magazine. So I'm like, well, I'll just, I'm going to try their history magazine. So I, just, I have a subscription to that. And just this morning, the, uh, well, last night, the new copy arrived in the mail, and I was looking at it. And the first thing I, I flipped open to like the third page, and it, it has a picture of a, um, a, a mummy, I think from Portugal. Okay. And there's some heading. The first thing that I uh, was attracted to is that there was this comment about climate change is rapidly deteriorating oh, these mummies <laughs> okay. that archaeologists are trying to rescue. I'm thinking, okay, please. Like you have to weave this into everything. Right. And then I, I flipped a couple pages and was reading something else and there was some other, I can't even remember what it was, some other ideology that was um, leaping off the pages at me. Oh, colonialism. They were okay. talking about a, a guy uh, in, in France that deciphered the uh, Egyptian hieroglyphics. 
And there's a little comment there, but it's his contribution to colonialism. I'm like, come on, like you have to <laughs> slip it in, just slip in a little climate change to this article and slip in a little colonialism to this yeah. article. It's everywhere, yeah. right? Well, it's here's yeah. here's the thing, Chris. Those those that would want to reduce the population, which by the way, if you're not if you're not familiar with what's going on, there there is an increased movement to reduce the human population. Uh, for some, down to as few as 500 million, I believe it is, like half a billion. So right now we have just shy of 8 billion people on the planet. So that would be like 1 16th, right, mm -hmm. of that number. That's what they want to reduce it down to. And I'll, I'll give some uh, evidence of that in a moment. But when, when we're talking about saving the planet, uh, cutting people off from eating meat, and... Uh, reducing the population, these sorts of climate change uh, solutions. solutions. Yep. They're actually an attack on certain biblical principles. So the one, the one that they're obviously attacking, so out of the gates, one of the things we learn about in the creation mandate is we're supposed to be fruitful and multiply. So we're supposed to have children. That's not quantified. I sometimes tease young couples and I say, if you only have two, you're just replacing yourself. <laughs> so you got to multiply. It's not addition, it's multiplication. <laughs> yeah. So I just, you know, tongue in cheek kind of encourage them to, yeah. to have more kids. Not not to uh, not to fail to acknowledge the fact that some can't. Okay. Yeah. But so we, we acknowledge that, but we encourage people to have large families. And uh, we're looking forward to your fifth child. Yeah. Who hopefully Lord is willing. going to come this I'll, month. I'll miss another couple of podcasts <laughs> and you'll probably. <laughs> yeah. So if, if in the middle of this podcast, by the way, Chris suddenly disappears because his wife's in labor. Exactly. She does, she's hopefully. doing like what, two, three weeks? Yeah. Something like yeah. that. So, so, so that's just exciting. don't ask her about it. <laughs> okay. I won't bring it up. <laughs> hopefully she doesn't listen to this podcast. Exactly. But So we're, we're called to be fruitful and multiply, but then we have primatologist, so the monkey expert, Jane Goodall, right? She's yep. the one that's been around for years. She's an older lady now. She's been around since she was very young and all the documentaries about her with the apes and the chimps and whatnot. And she she's a huge advocate of reducing the population along pragmatic lines. Like, well, wouldn't, wouldn't a family with two kids much rather run around in their acreage than a family with 10 kids that are starving to death? Mm. And so she she calls population control voluntary population optimization. <laughs> wow. <laughs> it's voluntary for now. For now, yeah. Exactly. And it's uh, optimizing, you know, the opportunities. But really it's an, it's an attack on the creation mandate to be fruitful and multiply. Mm -hmm. It doesn't say be fruitful and multiply to get up to a certain number, but it says be fruitful and multiply. David Attenborough, you might have, he's a famous um, documentary uh, host, done a lot of nature shows. He's a huge advocate in uh, population reduction. In fact, both of them are referenced in an article from 2010, basically saying that we're going to need two planets by 2030 because okay. the population is going to be out of control. So that's like eight years from now. No, we'll be fine. So it is an attack when, when human beings seek to reduce the population. And I think there's some some deliberate attempts mm -hmm. to do that through people like Goodall and Attenberg and some of their foundations to reduce mm -hmm. the population through family planning, birth control, these sorts of things. Yeah. That's a problem. There's also some demonic stuff. I think the gay agenda is tied to that. Hmm. So there's only one kind of human sexuality that produces children, heterosexuality. Mm -hmm. If you can make half the population gay, well, you're kind of helping along that issue. The abortion, the abortion yep. issue, yep. right? We're going to kill them in the womb because that's more palatable, I guess, than killing them out of the womb. So these are all attacks on the image of God when people are being put to death in the womb. But the, these various agendas all are tied to the population agenda, knowingly or unknowingly. So by human will or demonic will to reduce the, the population. The Bible also talks about us being given all plants and animals for food. Uh, in Genesis 9, 3, every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. Thank, thank God for that. Mm -hmm. Bacon, beef. There's some things that move that I don't really want to eat, but yeah. <laughs> that might be true. And as I, and as I give you, as I gave you green plants, God says, I give you everything. And you'll notice there's a real push now on reducing the consumption of beef yep. because 
beef flatulence is a huge issue. Your cow burping is a huge issue. It's destroying the atmosphere. It's it's so ridiculous that we're even having these conversations. Mm-hmm. Now, you know that I have beef. Yep. And in our county, there are very, very few beef farmers. Um, again, if you take 500 head of cattle, pack them onto two acres on a concrete pad and start stuffing grain down their throats and there's piles and piles of manure that's running off into a creek next door. Yeah. You're going to damage the environment. That's a stewardship issue. Yeah. Like don't be stupid. Like think about your environment. You know, there's a rule of thumb, one big cow per acre with its calf or two small cows per acre with their calves, not 500 cows per acre to maximize my profit and destroy the water table. So there, there's there's common sense to the, the way we raise animals, to the way we harvest meat, to the way we grow our crops and on and on and on. There's common sense, but not we're going to ban all meat mm-hmm. and instead we're going to, you know, eat crickets or whatnot. By the way, I did a, I did a little bit of math. Now, I, I, I can't say that I scored super high in mathematics in school, <laughs> but I do know basic math. So this is just as an illustration, okay? So just, just to combat the climate change, the overpopulation um, alarmism. So here, here are just some things. And these numbers, depending where you look, they're going to be a, a little different depending on what source you go to, but I think they're generally true. So we have on the planet around... 12 billion acres of farmable land. I think an acre is around 44,000 or 45,000 square feet, if I remember. So we have 12 billion acres of farmable land. So this, we're not talking about land that's only useful for mining right? or is covered with snow. The and, Canadian Shield up north. Yeah, so this is yeah. just farmable land, 12 billion acres of farmable land. When you put a greenhouse on an acre of land, like the commercial greenhouses. We have a lot of greenhouses around here. You can grow 60, maybe a hundred fold, what you would grow on an open field. So that's good technology. You could grow tens of thousands of pounds of food per acre on under a greenhouse, no problem, even in a colder climate like Canada. And by the way, uh, just to point out the hypocrisy, I don't like to be lectured by politicians that are whining about food shortages when they're eating up greenhouse space, growing cannabis. Like, give me a break. You're going to waste hundreds and hundreds, maybe thousands across the country of acres of greenhouse space, which which could be growing good food so people can smoke and toke. Like, mm-hmm. give me a break, right? So there's, there's so much hypocrisy and double standards in this, but that's an aside. So we have about 12 billion acres of farmable land. There's about 8 billion people on the planet. And they tell us that the the average households, so if you average it out globally, you got about 4.9 people per household. So what that means, so let's just say around five, 4.9. What that means is that to give everyone in the, every family on the planet, a detached house, we're not talking about living in condos or skyscrapers. You would need 1.6 billion detached houses so that Everybody, every family on the planet has their own detached house, Mm 1.6 billion detached houses. In a nice subdivision, you put about five houses on every acre. You get a nice detached house. You look at the the land mass, you get about five in a subdivision, five houses per acre. So that means you would need 327 million acres of land for housing to accommodate the entire planet. So th- listen to the numbers again, Three point, or 327 million acres, just a farmable land. Now we could also build on non-farmable land, but if we just built our houses, three point, yeah, or right. 327 yeah, yeah. million acres, we just built houses on them. And we have 36 billion acres of land on the planet, 12 billion of them are farmable. We have tons and tons and tons and tons and tons of farmable or potentially farmable land available. And especially if you're putting greenhouses on them, the population could multiply many fold. If you added another 500 million acres for infrastructure, Mm -hmm. for government structures, for police stations, for hospitals, whatever, you tripled that, you Mm -hmm. quadrupled that. You're, You're still 
you still have tons and tons and tons of land. Now, those that land is not always managed properly. We understand that. Again, if you're going to pack 30 million people into one city, you're going to have some big issues with sewage. Mm-hmm. If you're going to pack 500 head of cattle onto one acre on a concrete pad and let the manure run off into the creek, you're going to have some issues. But if we were if we were to use common sense and stewardship, there's plenty of room and plenty of opportunity. These are detached houses. These don't include sky rises, apartment buildings. Mm-hmm. There's plenty of plenty of room for the world to grow. Now that's just the math. Travel a little bit. I've traveled. I've been to Africa. I've been to the African continent, the Asian continent, Europe. I've been to North America, South America, been to different countries in those places. When you're coming in low in your plane and you're looking out, there are massive, massive, almost limitless swaths of land with nobody on them. And then you get into the cities and all the lights and the congestion. It's fine to have cities, I'm not opposed to cities. But if you only spend your time in the city, listen to this, if you only spend your time in the city and you only spend your time in the internet, mm-hmm. of course you're going to assume the world's overpopulated. If you've never grown a carrot, you've never grown anything, you just constantly rely upon other people. Then you go to the grocery store and your favorite potato chips have run out. Yeah, you might assume that there's a food shortage. Mm-hmm. You know, you go to buy your Coca-Cola and they don't have Coke on the shelf. So you're terrified the world's going to come to an end, right? I mean, this is how people think. And the, the bottom line is it's an attack on God's promise, which I read earlier in uh, Genesis 8, 22. It's been right for thousands of years and it'll be right until Christ returns. Seed time and harvest, summer and winter will not end until God says it's going to end. And we can take that to the bank and count on that while exercising a robust biblical stewardship over our possessions, not to save the planet, but to honor the king who mm-hmm. owns it all, mm-hmm. who owns the cattle on a thousand hills. Yeah. yeah, And that's a different mindset where it's the planet is there to be used by humanity, stewarded by humanity, but the planet, it's not humanity that's there to serve the planet for God's, you know, like, or for to worship the planet, right? Yeah. Any more than the shirt I'm wearing, I don't exist to serve this shirt. Mm-hmm. The shirt exists to meet a need and eventually the shirt's going to wear out or I'm going to throw it out or whatever else. The shirt doesn't exist uh, for its own purposes. The planet doesn't exist for its own purposes. And we, we utilize, we steward our clothing, our automobiles, our houses, even our own bodies mm-hmm. and the possessions around us, knowing that they will eventually die and wear out. And until God decides that it, enough's enough and in, in, in the Lord Jesus returns, what we're guaranteed is there's going to be a winter, followed by a spring, followed by a summer, followed by a fall. Mm-hmm. And there's going to be harvest and there's going to be reaping and there's going to be seeds planted in the ground. And those cycles will continue around and around and around from the beginning of time to the end of time. And we can trust in that. Mm-hmm. And in the meanwhile, you know, we want to exercise wisdom, but we're not living in fear. And we're trying to bring God's laws and God's rules into culture so people can understand how to farm better. Mm-hmm. The word of God, surprise, surprise, has some rules and some laws in place about farming, about the economy, about raising your kids, about animal husbandry. The Bible speaks to these practical issues. But the final thing I want to touch on, Chris, is the hypocrisy of those that are advocating the climate change agenda. Integrity matters. Character matters. Your character matters. Your competency matters. Your capacity matters. And when we look out at the global climate activists, there's a lot of sickening behavior that we see between their words and their actions. Mm-hmm. So we we have in our own can, in our own country we have a prime minister, the infamous tyrant Justin Trudeau, whose almost every speech is lecturing about climate change and unrolling plans that's supposed to fix the planet. And he's always referencing Canadians who apparently all agree with him. The Canadians want this. Canadians want that. And then he's taking a trip down south to a warm and sunny place on a private jet with his family for some time away. Now, I don't begrudge the man vacation. If you want to go on vacation, go on vacation. But if you're really that concerned about the climate, if you're really that concerned about the environment, why don't you drive 10 kilometers 
or 50 miles down the road to a provincial or state park and camp with your kids for the weekend? Why do you have to go on a luxurious trip down south if the world's falling apart and you're telling me I'm not, I shouldn't be eating meat and I should be buying a $90,000 EV to drive around in and you're taxing me through the teeth for gasoline, but you can take a trip on a private jet down south, wherever you want. You can fly across the country. Why don't you Zoom everywhere? If Zoom, so, if Zoom was so necessary to save the planet under a pandemic, why don't we just go to Zoom parliament? Why doesn't everybody sit at home in their underwear and their flannels and just Zoom in? We'll have Zoom parliament. We'll sell the parliament buildings in Ottawa. We'll sell Queen's Park in Toronto. We'll just Zoom in. People can Zoom into work. Man, you could even Zoom in on vacation. Instead of going on vacation to some tropical paradise, why don't you just sit in front of your television for the next two weeks and watch footage of life in the Caymans or life in Antigua? You know, why, why not do that? Mm -hmm. See the hypocrisy? Like People ultimately want what they want for themselves, but they don't necessarily want that for you. And there's a lot of hypocrisy involved in, in, in this sort of thing. And then we have the unchurched who fascinatingly are so quick. They have zero tolerance for hypocritical churches and they have zero tolerance for money grubbing churches, but they seem to have endless grace for hypocritical politicians and endless grace for money grubbing politicians, endless grace for them. Mm -hmm. And that says a lot. Well, I would also say, to speak back to the clip that we played with uh, Greta Thunberg, the hypocrisy, even in her generation, getting on a plane, flying to a summit, the, 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 the fact that a lot of these young people are burning through more resources, as others have pointed out, more resources than any generation before them. They have air conditioning in their classrooms. They have access to endless electronic devices. They love their expensive Starbucks coffee, complete with a sleeve because you don't want to burn your thin skin because you've never actually worked with your physical hands. So you need that extra layer because you can't hold a hot cup of coffee without one. And you need this and you need that. And, and you, need, you just need so much to survive and to enjoy mm -hmm. life. You need your expensive drinks, your expensive clothes, but you're lecturing the world on climate change. Now, uh, I really appreciated a response that an Australian news broadcaster offered to Greta's speech. And we want to play that just to give you a little bit of joy and to encourage your heart. I think it's absolutely <laughs> hilarious, but he's also pointing out the truth of the matter. And frankly, what he's doing is what we need to be doing. We need to call out the hypocrisy. We need to call out the lies and the double standards that so many of these political figures and climate change activists are, are guilty of. So let's, mm -hmm. let's play this final clip from Sky News. To all the school kids going on strike for climate change, you're the first generation who've required air conditioning in every classroom. You want TV in every room and your classes are all computerized. You spend all day and night on electronic devices. More than ever, you don't walk or ride bikes to school, but you arrive in caravans of private cars that choke suburban roads and worsen rush hour traffic. You're the biggest consumers of manufactured goods ever and update perfectly good, expensive luxury items to stay trendy. Your entertainment comes from electric devices. Furthermore, the people driving your protests are the same people who insist on artificially inflating the population growth through immigration, which increases the need for energy, manufacturing and transport. The more people we have, the more forest and bushland we clear. The more of the environment that's destroyed. How about this? Tell your teachers to switch off the aircon, walk or ride to school, switch off your devices and read a book, make a sandwich instead of buying manufactured fast food. No, none of this will happen because, the piece says, you're selfish, badly educated, virtue signalling little turds inspired by the adults around you who crave a feeling of having a noble cause while they indulge themselves in Western luxury and unprecedented quality of life. The piece ends by saying, wake up, grow up, and shut up. 
I absolutely love it. <laughs> <laughs> the number of times you re- replayed that clip for me this week. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> I've almost got it memorized. <laughs> but you know what? I would, add, I would add a couple more things to his list. He's talking about electronic devices and expensive, expensive food and designer clothes. Why don't you drop your antidepressant meds? Why don't you drop your birth control tablets? Because all those medications that the world is foisting upon us to control moods because they haven't actually surrendered to God and everybody's depressed and anxious and the birth control pills, which are in there to reduce the population are going through your body and getting into our water supplies. So the same people that are concerned about our water supplies, our, our sewage treatment plants are taking all endless numbers of substances and pharmaceuticals into their bodies. And that is evacuated out into our water supplies. See, see the hypocrisy, Mm -hmm. just more, more of the same old, hypocrisy how, how many how, how much resources how many resources are wasted uh in abortion mills the 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 bricks the blocks the mortar the labor that's that's needed to build those facilities the transgender surgeries the bandages the medications the time driving to the hospital the time for the physicians to drive to the hospital the infrastructure that's required so there's all of these things, right? Just using these as illustrations, they all add up. In and of themselves may not be a big deal, but they add up. People, people that are climate change activists and want to want to want to fix the world are big into the pharmaceuticals, uh, that, which again, scientists are telling us are ending up in our water supplies and changing fish and f- affecting clean water supplies. They're 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 quick to take take advantage of all these optional surgeries that align with their woke lifestyles, their godless hedonistic lifestyles. They, they want the expensive food. They want someone to always be making their food for them. They want the disposable dishes and on and on and on and on. They want everything, but what they don't want is God. And they're certainly not interested in surrendering themselves to God and learning to live their lives under his ultimate benevolent rule and as stewards of the creation, which he in fact owns. So we're going to call him out on that, and we're going to encourage our people to to have a robust understanding of stewardship of one's resources, but not to live in fear that the world is going to end as the climate alarmists would have us. We're going to keep having children. We're going to have lots of children, and we're going to continue to utilize the resources that God has given to us, believing that he will provide for us in his timing and in his ways. Mm-hmm. You know, as you spoke about uh, Greta, one of the things that popped in my mind, I had recalled hearing that um, when she goes across the Atlantic, she doesn't take a plane because she doesn't want to, like she wants to be consistent kind of thing. But uh, <laughs> then you look up the article about that and you find out the boat she took in order for her to take that boat, the captain had to fly from the UK over oh. to the States to <laughs> man the ship to sail her back. So it wasn't actually carbon neutral. So even <laughs> even when it's it trying. So is it like an electric boat? No, I think it's a sailboat of some sort, a speed, <laughs> uh, some sailing speedboat or something like that, okay. a, a racing yacht or something. Oh, okay. But uh, so even even when there's the appearance, they're trying to go like the, Obviously, it's a publicity stunt, right? Sure. So, yeah. How much um, money? How much? How much carbon was burned building the boat? Right. You just follow it yeah. back. Like things don't just appear out of nowhere. Mm-hmm. Green technology just doesn't appear out of nowhere. I'll I'll just give one final illustration. Several weeks ago. I, I saw this clip. It, I think it was from the last year or two where they were unveiling this new Chevy Volt. I think it was in Ohio or Indiana. Mm-hmm. And there's this, the, the journalists are there and they all go outside and the sales rep is pointing out this new, new EV and telling them where the batteries are and it's plugged in and this thing's ready to go. Right. And this is green. It's green technology. And one of the journalists sort of puts up their hand and says, uh, it's plugged in, but like, where, where does the electricity come from that powers the building that it's plugged into? And they're like, ah, mm, um, mm, and someone kind of says, uh, from a coal plant. Right? Yeah. So even there, the hypocrisy, so you're going to burn coal to create electricity, to plug your volt in, to yeah. do your thing. Now, obviously there are better, better technologies and, you know, nuclear is cleaner than coal from what I understand. So th- there's things we can do to, you know, reduce stench and reduce waste. But at the end of the day, we are going to leave behind a a footprint, a carbon footprint for our time here on earth. And that's totally fine. That's the way God designed mm-hmm. us. 
That's good. Okay, I got one last question for you. Yeah. Uh, you know that in London, Ontario, I believe it's London, Ontario, they're building a gigantic cricket production facility. So if yeah. crickets become the new norm, are you going to join the bandwagon? I'm totally into crickets, man. I mean, I have no problem with that. John the Baptist ate locusts. <laughs> Actually, you know, when when we went to the, the Creation Museum in the Ark oh, yeah. um, several years ago with our family, I think it was at the Ark, but it could have been at the Creation Museum. They had... Uh, like a gift shop and in that gift shop they had little packages of you know crazy things they had uh, salt and vinegar flavored crickets and uh, Simon and I my youngest son we uh, gleefully bought them ate them put them on our tongue stuck them out show the girls and everything <laughs> else and kind of freaked them out they, they weren't so bad but you get the problem is you get a little uh, the little <laughs> Don't feet stuck in between your teeth and then you get to start buying dental floss and apparently <laughs> dental floss leaves a pretty significant carbon footprint so you it, you know you're shooting yourself in the foot either way so they're gonna have to really grind up these crickets <laughs> the cricket legs <laughs> you know to make sure that people don't start, you know, unnecessarily buying dental floss in order to uh, deal with the cricket legs that are stuck between their teeth. So that's that's my best answer to that. But and I would also say, um, ideally, I prefer them well done rather than uh, rather than rare. <laughs> rare, okay, good. You're gonna get all kinds of mail, listener mail, sending you their favorite yeah. <laughs> cricket recipes. <laughs> cricket recipes, exactly. So. Well, that is the Leadership Now podcast for this week. Thank you for tuning in. Make sure to download the Fight, Laugh, Feast app and join us and a bunch of other podcasters who are hosting podcasts there. We're so thankful for the men over at Fight, Laugh, Feast Network and uh, all their work there. Thankful as well for the CJXC radio that hosts this show on their show, on their uh, radio, online radio on 11 a.m. Tuesdays and rebroadcast 11 p.m. on Thursdays. So check that out. Make sure to like and follow and share and do all that good stuff on social media so we can get the word out and tune in, I hope, next week again to another episode of Leadership Now with Dr. Aaron Roth.